be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Out of a longing for inspiration, grace, mercy, and peace, we gather to worship. The service of ordered worship is offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We gather as a community committed to love of God and neighbor, as a community which desires to provide a heart for the heart of the city and a service in the service of the city. We invite your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your decision about forms of leadership and service in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, your presence with us for worship. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and one who loves is born of God. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
God mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, we are invited during the singing of the Kyrie to offer our own prayers of confession. Our age, as much as any other, perhaps more than any other, hungers for the language of contrition, longs for the spirit of compunction, yearns for the courage of confession. We face the contrast of abundance and scarcity. We know for sure that not every investment has been fruitful, faithful, or talented. And so we sing the one thing needful in a time of various forms of ruin, a desire for pardon. Let us pray. But for the grace of God, we would not be, and but for the grace of God, we could not love, and but for the grace of God, we should not speak. But by God's grace, we live and love and speak. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson. From the first epistle of St. John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsively verses from Psalm 14 with the Antiphon. Say in their hearts, 
There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have gone astray. They are all like perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, there shall be in great terror, for God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion. Then the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Please now rise in body as you are able, but certainly in spirit, for the Gloria Patri, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn. The Gospel lesson. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Glory to you, O Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. 
Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Beloved, let us love one another. Was there ever a time or a season, a month or a week more hungry than ours is now for this inspiration? Was this ever a more timely word? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and one who loves is born of God and knows God. This is the Johannine inspiration that comes from the Gospel and the letters of John, including our reading from 1 John today. In a strange way, the same spirit emanates from the center of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15. We hear today of the loss and return of a coin and a sheep, and on another day of the loss and return of a prodigal son. These beautiful parables, like the Johannine inspiration, come shorn of overwrought doctrine or tradition. 
They place us rather in the moment of loss and return, of coming home. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and one who loves is born of God and knows God. One who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Words sublime, the high peak of Johannine inspiration. We crave the hearing and trusting of such words today amid the cacophony of so much language, religious language included, that is less inspiring. In this is love that God sent the Son that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And yet, those who have read through the letters of John and the gospel itself will have a question or two. Across the river at Harvard three autumns ago, after an evening presentation, a wise and kind man clearly said, I have trouble with the Johannine literature. I have trouble reading John. We can surmise what he probably meant. Our lovely lesson read earlier comes after and as a byproduct of a long and pained history of religious conflict. The community of John had good reason to state one who does not love does not know God. One feels that they had been on several sides of that locution over many years. Takes one to know one. We are not the first generation to know the scalding of religious conflict. The question is whether we can emerge from it with inspiration. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. These words of light were born in darkness, for in John and 1 John we find various troubling, troublesome, troublous passages. We read repeatedly the phrase hoi hudaioi, the Jews, for example, which has a very idiosyncratic particular meaning in this gospel. We come upon Jesus saying harsh things for and aft. We turn the page to find gentle Jesus, meek and mild, bluntly assaulting his countrymen, his fellows in religiosity, his co-inheritors of law, prophets, writings, Moses, Amos, Job. With the following exercise in humility, quote, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. We find that far more than the already heated anti-Semitism of Mark has been baked into the conclusion of the fourth gospel, the account of the crucifixion. We need an historical diachronic reading of John, one that looks at its place and time, its community of origin, its life setting, and thereby which frees, which alone can give the measure of the promise of 831. You shall know the truth, and the truth 
will set you free. We know, do we not, about overheated religious rhetoric. We know of this from our current so wrong-headed, overheated, unfortunate rhetoric with, with reference to our Muslim sisters and brothers. We also find it here in our own Bible, in the Johannine literature. It is not to be read or understood literally. It is to be understood historically and theologically as a particularly dark moment in the shameful Christian tradition of anti-Semitism. We need to know this first. John's Jesus makes several remarkable claims given the rest of the New Testament. Are many or all of them historically reliable? Some may, may be, but many are not. They reflect a changed understanding of the Christ, hard won and hard earned, and the titles in these pages of gospel and letters, the titles for Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, come from different points in the community's own journey, history, and theology some 90, 80 years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We need to know this and more. John's community has suffered trauma that has caused change. Trauma brings change. They have suffered the trauma of disappointment. The end of the world which they expected did not come disappointingly enough. They found the courage to admit it and to change. That is, in disappointment, they discovered freedom. They also have suffered the trauma of dislocation. They have been thrown out of their religious home, desynagogued, if you will, and are wandering out in the street when the gospel is born. They lost their mother tongue, their mother land, their mother tradition, which is a huge dislocation. They found the courage to face it and to change. That is, in dislocation, they discovered grace. Paul, who did not write or know John, might well have said, see, I told you, when I am weak, then I am strong. We need to know this first. We come here to the stunning heart, the surprising marrow of inspiration, Johannine inspiration. Out of the forged iron as from a refiner's fire, of all this deep disappointment and dark dislocation, there emerged a document, a set of documents, perhaps best printed in poetic form, which has been the height of inspiration for almost 2,000 years. John has been the spiritual and the sublime gospel, the poet's gospel. Out of all this hurt, there somewhere emerged our morning's epistle. For four years, I have had alongside me as a teaching assistant in the gospel of John, a most brilliant, funny, 
young mother and Episcopal priest. She is a literary critic. She practices rhetorical criticism. She loves poetry. And twice a term, I ask her to bring her potent medicines, the alchemic mixtures of literary criticism, to bear upon our text. And the Reverend Ms. Regina Walton, every term, shows our students three poems which grew up out of the Johannine literature and illumine its meaning. And for today's sermon, I determined to have you hear parts of each of them. They are light, joy, truth, power, meaning, and love. They are gospel, and they are beautiful. They are rhetorically beautiful religious language. What other than such beauty, epitomized by our lesson from 1 John, will ever drive out the demons of hateful religious rhetoric? More. Could it be that years from now, in some unforeseen and unforeseeable way, as if forged in a refiner's fire, the deep disappointments and dark dislocations of our current religious culture might drive us up, out, and back to holy beauty as over millennia happened with John. Listen in these days when you can hear them for the poets emerging to recall us to our rightful minds. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The English Civil War occurred soon after his death, leading to disestablishment. Herbert was an orator at Cambridge and sickly. From a young age, he knew that he was called to write devotional poetry. He knew John Donne, who was a friend of his mother's. He employs both trochaic and iambic meters. He writes, among other things, of the soul's call to God, of the claim the believer has on God. That is, in his work, there is a Johannine courage. You know his lines. Love made me welcome, but my soul drew back. Here is a poem that draw, draws directly on John 14, 6, and 16, read by Brother Lawrence Whitney, our university chaplain for community life and student ministry. Come, my way, my truth, my life. Such a way as gives us breath, such a truth as ends all strife, and such a life as killeth death. Come, my light, my feast, my strength, such a light as shows a feast, such a feast as mends in length, such a strength as makes his guest. Come, my joy, my love, my heart, such a joy as none can move, such a love as none can part, such a heart 
as joys in love. Henry Vaughan lived from 1622 to 1695. He fought on the Royalist side during the Great War. Vaughan is known as one of the best followers and imitators of Herbert. In 1649, Charles I executed Oliver Cromwell. The Church of England was disestablished and the Book of Common Prayer was outlawed. The king was understood to be anointed by God. Incidentally, Vaughan's brother was an alchemist himself. Vaughan lived during a dark time and his poetry evokes his time. He recalls the great pseudo-Dionysus and the cloud of unknowing. He celebrates night and the darkness of God in a way that I believe connects truly to our time as well. It is no accident that he bases his poem on Nicodemus at night, John 3, portions of which we now hear read by Ms. Jen Quigley, our chapel associate for vocational discernment. Through that pure virgin shrine, that sacred veil drawn o'er thy glorious noon, that men might look and live as glowworms shine and face the moon. Wise Nicodemus saw such light as made him know his God by night. Most blessed believer he, who in that land of darkness and blind eyes thy long-expected healing wings could see. When thou didst rise, and what can never more be done, did at midnight speak with the sun. Dear night, this world's defeat, the stop to busy fools, cares check and curb, the day of spirits, my soul's calm retreat which none disturb, Christ's progress and his prayer time, the hours to which high heaven doth chime. There is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. As men here say it is late and dusky, because they see not all clear. Oh, for that night, where I in him might live, invisible and dim. You will not be surprised, many of you, by the choice for our third poet. T.S. Eliot was born in America, yet lived most of his life in England until his death in 1965. He was the greatest poet of his age and one of the greatest of any age. While our generation does not cling to him as did an earlier one, and this itself is a pity, nonetheless, he touches us too. To him we owe the rediscovery of the metaphysical poets. Eliot found God's presence in God's absence. And like Herbert's mature claim upon God, like Vaughan's love of night, Eliot's presence in absence seems strikingly close to the spirit of our own age. The following poem owes much 
to John chapter 1, read by Chapel Associate Michael Brown, our Ministry Associate for Judicial Affairs. If the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, still is the unspoken word the word, unheard, the word without a word, the word within the world and for the world. And the light shone in the darkness, and against the word, the unstilled world still whirled about the center of the silent word. O my people, what have I done unto thee? Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, there is not enough silence, not on the sea or on the islands, not on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland. For those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. Here are three poems, three moments of Johannine inspiration. One for those in need, one for those at night, one for those troubled by absence, to which we might respond, Amen, Amen, Amen. Words sublime. Is there a time that more needed the power of their beauty? The poets have something, these three, and have something in common. We leave you with their Johannine inspiration today. In fact, we address and challenge you with that inspiration today. The poets have a sense of something. They have a premonition, an awareness of a looming presence. Their words and the words of scripture point us toward this premonition, this awareness, this inspiration, a looming presence in way, truth, and life, a looming presence in night and dark and light, a looming presence in word and speech and silence. In a reality beyond our inescapable reality, they tell us, we are ever in the presence of one brooding over the fracas of history, brooding over the chaos of nature, brooding over the conflicts in religion, and brooding over our struggles in faith and life. A looming presence whose nature and whose name is love. Beloved, let us love one another. Amen. Let us now take the time to offer our prayers to God. 
You may sit, stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as according to your tradition. Now, please join me in singing, Lead Me, Lord. pray for the church in the world. I will conclude each prayer with merciful God. Please respond with hear our prayer. We pray for the church universal, ecumenical councils, churches and other places in our country and abroad and their leaders, and for us here on Commonwealth Avenue at Marsh Chapel. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the nations and all those in authority that they may make wise decisions based on love and fairness for all people. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for justice and peace in all the world in the midst of war, poverty, and selfishness. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the health of those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit that you may bring comfort. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the needs of families, single people, and the lonely. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for reconciliation with adversaries so that we may be an example of your love. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for all who are oppressed or in prison. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for our local community in Boston and all other communities so that your healing and gracious presence would shine in the dark places. Merciful God, hear our prayer. And now we join together in saying the prayer that your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. Good morning, and uh, welcome once again to Marsh Chapel. Uh, I hope that you will take a moment to um, take the red pads found along the center aisle of each pew and pass them along and sign in with your name and contact information so that we may get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the week. Following the service, we hope you'll join us for coffee hour, and you may wish to stay from 1230 to 115 for Bible study in the Thurman Room. We give thanks this morning for the Reverend Dr. Mark Yoon here to read our gospel and also the leader of our weekly Sunday afternoon Bible study. We point you to uh, the chapel website for ongoing activities throughout the week. And uh, for a note about the choir, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett. If you're with us live at Marsh Chapel this morning, in your bulletin you'll find an insert, a postcard, which details the musical activities for this season at Marsh Chapel. It's conveniently arranged so that you can put it on your refrigerator, your cubicle wall, your computer screen, hopefully right in the middle, your <laughs> steering wheel, maybe not steering wheel, but you can put it there and flip it over uh, in the winter and find the activities for the rest of the season there. We hope that you'll mark these in your calendar and be with us as often as you can in support of these activities. In particular, I want to call your attention to the first item listed in that card, September 26, two Sundays from today. We have the first in our Bach Cantata series and something special to announce to you this year. Starting at 9.45 on each of those Sunday mornings, we will have what we're calling the Bach Experience. And the choir and the Collegium will join me here and we'll hopefully join you. We'll have a 30-minute discussion of the cantata, providing musical examples. Uh, I'll speak to the musical examples and theological examples that Bach gives us in these wonderful masterpieces which we have the chance to survey and are a regular part of our musical activity. Please join us for that moment together. Uh, we have breakfast following, and then, of course, the cantata is performed in its liturgical context in the service and for the broadcast at 11 a.m. Thank you for your attention to these. See you soon. Thank you, Scott. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
God of light, joy, truth, power, meaning, and love, bless and consecrate these gifts and those who have given them for the support of your ministries on earth. Let us truly love one another. We pray in the name of Christ, the Word, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you. Amen. <laughs> 